It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light, light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, yes, I... I love Professor Cahoo. Yes, he's right. Let us neither dilly nor dally. That's my code. Yes, neither dilly nor dally. Just get with it. Write to the president and tell him. Yes, say, uh, let us neither waffle nor mince. Just get on with it. Do the right thing. Yes, do the next best right thing. Oh, boy, uh, I'm a little tired of some of us being a voice, <laughs> a, a voice for good in the community. Uh, this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. It is Tuesday, August the 16th, 2011. All day I stayed up most of last night watching Werner Herzog's documentary. Ooh. Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Wow. It's a documentary about a prehistoric um, cave, the cave paintings there in France. It's a little bit like some of the other paintings, you know, in Altamira, but it is special. This one was discovered or un- is it found in 1994. You know how that is? They They kind of feel a little breeze or they smell it out. Anyway, it's one of those caves where you have to go through the narrow little tunnel back into the womb where they painted these um, shamanic uh, animals, uh, all that stuff. It's not for everyone. Some people are... (laughs) some, Some people... You know, the the characters, the archaeologists and the scientists in the documentary were kind of like characters in a Monty Python sketch. But for me, uh, well, I'm a mythomaniac. I can just trip out on that stuff. Uh, about the third time through, um, I saw, well, there was an image, it was one image of a female and... Uh, uh, they, the explanation they gave was so silly that it took me the third viewing before it got to me. They did point out that there was only one human image, only one image of a person in the cave. Uh, well, of course, they have the handprints somehow or another. That's like, you know, even even today's little kids, the first thing they do in kindergarten is make those um, clay they use clay and they make a handprint. I was here, right? Uh, and then they did that thing, you know, they spit the paint around so that you see their hand on the wall. 
the little red dots and all that good stuff. Um, the ochre. The ochre actually was Neanderthals. They used that for burials. Uh, the guys in this documentary insisted that the Neanderthals didn't have anything to show for themselves uh, image-wise, but they were wrong about that. Anyway, I like to just dream, yes. Uh, it's not a forgotten dream. We all have these dreams. I like to imagine all those artists working by torchlight. Um, you know, they they use the grease or the... Well, no, they eat the marrow of the bones. They save that for baby food. But they get some of the grease or wax, something like a wax or fat from the animals. And they get the torches going and then... They leave these images. Uh, I don't know. Um, is it in their minds that maybe the image will last 32,000 years? Apparently in this particular cave. Uh, uh, about 20,000 years ago, there was a landslide that sealed it off. That's why it's pristine. That's the word they use. Uh I imagine, well, no, I know, of course, that it is women. They were the artists. Um, no question about that. What else did they have to do? I fell asleep about, oh, God, four o'clock this morning. I was dreaming my prehistoric existence, you know. Uh, right, how do you hide the marrow of the bones? So the babies get that. That's the best part. Uh, let's see. How many mothers and grandmothers is that? 32,000 years. Hmm. 4,000 mothers, grandmothers, and great-grandmothers counting back. Uh, I remember... The uh, French writer, the great French writer, Victor Hugo, he said, If you would civilize a man, begin with his grandmother. There you got it. That's the one. <laughs> Start with the grandmother. She's the one who, she's the one who uh, sanctifies the kings, you know, that stone of scone under the throne she sits there and she she puts him on the throne of course it's the king who's on the throne but it's his uh maternal parent who puts him there uh anyway for this documentary they used a lot of um french landscape they even used a french perfumer he looked like a complete nut he said he could smell the caves through rock, you know. Werner Herzog has a weird aspect. Uh, the opening scene is a French vineyard where they grow the wine, right? The valley there in uh, France, it's cut through by the, the ice from the Ice Age. I still think of... Uh, is it the Oracle at Delphi, the, the valleys, you know where um, they say that there were these fumes from deep in the earth, the stuff that made people high so they could prophesy. Uh, anyway, Werner Herzog 
takes the guys down there and he says, everybody be silent now so we can feel the spirits. I I have no doubt he felt the spirits. <laughs> what I like is the image of an ice age all across Europe. Uh, all those woolly mammoths and furs. You could walk. Walk from Paris to London, right? Uh, it wasn't Paris or London then, but anyway, just cross the channel on foot. Uh, what really fascinates me is the feeling uh, that our human nature is exactly the same today as it was then, 32,000 years ago, when there was probably what? Oh, I don't know. There might have been a million or so human beings. I'm not sure. Nobody knows, of course. Uh, was uh, Professor Kaku saying, how many on earth today? I think we've hit seven billion. Am I right? Seven billion. I was told that it would be what? We'd get to six billion in my lifetime and suddenly it's so many more. I was born in a world where there, well, it was Two billion, two billion souls in 1933. And that's just one lifetime, folks. Tripled in my lifetime, Al Gore. Always says it doubled in his lifetime. He's younger than I. Anyway, our species hasn't evolved, uh, no matter how many of us there are. Human nature is a constant. Um, I have friends who insist that we're running out of soul plasma, that we're thinning our soul plasma. It's like, it's like thinning of the blood, you know? The psyche, our, our strength, the strength of our psyche is thinning down. Uh, I'm not sure. I still see plenty of what I call, uh, well, it's, it's not passion. Let's call it life force. For some folks, it's primate grandiosity. Uh, I look at the the violence on television, the, to call that the assertiveness, let's call it, of human beings. Uh, I prefer to think about the impulse of the artists. That stuff is still very much with us. Uh, this impulse or this drive to become a shaman, to recreate life, to to put images on the walls, you know, to, what is that, is it acting out? The images seem to speak, run, walk, fight, you know, you see the uh, rhinos uh, locking horns, there they are, set forth, uh, I think... You know, most of the scholars say, well, they painted the uh, animals so that they could capture their spirit and then capture them for real on the hunt, you know. I think it was also something about humans worshipping animals as blood brothers. I kind of think they understood that, (laughs) you know, there were different species, but, you know, we were all sentient beings. Uh, I believe that prehistoric woman depended uh, on the animals, upon her clan. Uh, 
I think the animals and the plants, well, you know, uh, all that stuff was thick as the air, nothing like the way we live now. Uh, I love to read Mark Twain's Diary of Adam and Eve. Uh, Mark Twain, of course, uh, was a 19th century man, but he has the most delightful take on Eve, the aboriginal woman, on her passion for herds and herds of animals. He has her riding at the head of the herds. Uh, Actually, then he makes jokes about Adam. He says that Adam thought that the baby, you know, Abel, that first baby, he said, well, first he thought it was a fish. Then he knew it was a boy. But for all our civilized behavior, uh, (laughs) I guess, with its comic cover-ups, our species today is still just a frightened animal, you know, uh, shuddering in the cave, looking out at the storms uh, the way we did in the caves. Actually, this particular cave uh, is full of bear bones, the clan of the cave bear in there. It's wonderful. There's a huge bear skull on a pedestal. Apparently, there were no um, groups living in the cave. They just used it maybe as their temple. I like to think of it that way. It was the church, the temple. Uh, I imagine prehistoric human beings were just as confused as we are. uh, Although I imagine that they saw everything on earth. What is that? Uh, what is it, as real, unreal, who knows what what was reality then? Uh, they saw the magic, this, they found, I think they were after the source of power, right, uh, the place where they were safe, the comfort of each other, I guess, you know, the hearth, the fire, later the throne, all that magic, uh, where does it come from? You know, I I think maybe the worship of fire. Uh, there was a kind of silly movie called uh, Quest for Fire a few years ago. And it was, a, it was a complete mess. It was by the guy who wrote The Naked Ape, you know. He had it all wrong, but it was fascinating, that picture. Uh, Check it out if you have a chance. I prefer the ancient Hollywood uh, 1 million B.C. with Victor Mature. That's the one where the archaeologist finds a cave and he turns to the students and he says, let's just pretend they look just like us and then I'll tell you the story that's in the rocks. And he tells a story about two tribes and one is a tribe of hippies that help each other and the other tribe is a, uh, a group that... Uh, eats each other up, you know, cannibals. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, name your poison. The old religions obviously were both. Uh, I look at the Republicans. Uh, well, cannibals, uh, I don't know, mankind's fundamentalist beliefs. Uh, I guess... Humans have always, well, they believe in belief. That's for sure. They need to worship something, whether it's out of fear or love, depends on 
who you ask, um, I like to watch the way it, well, you remember in the beginning of the uh, women's liberation movement, they told us that the personal was political and uh, I said, yes, but the political is personal too, right, works both ways. And uh, all these, what is it, all these symbols come home. Uh, I was thinking the other day, I heard a report of a traveling museum. It's a museum of broken relationships. And I thought, oh, there's a new religion. There's a new cult. Uh, obviously, it is a cult mostly uh, feminine women, yes. Uh, but it might be some new twist on the old story. Uh, it reflects a trend, an evolutionary trend to be separate, to be less each other, less clan, more individuality. Maybe we can afford uh, to be independent. Uh, the museum is this display of things like, you know, keys and broken hearts and little artifacts, symbols of breaking up, splitting, uh, the coming together, togetherness. Uh, there are so many ways to come together. Uh, some good, some bad. The icons, uh, they are the art that we make. Uh, all the poems and pictures and novels and movies, all abandoned souls, lonely souls. Uh, what's interesting to me, most of the objects in this new museum, which may become a new religion, the objects come from women, you know. Women are the romance addicts. Uh, not the real romance addicts. Those are men, but don't tell anyone. Uh, the objects from uh, only one country uh, are more from men than women. In Turkey, it's the boys who left more things to commemorate their loss in romance. Uh Rumor has it that the changes in Turkey over the last 20 years have simply overwhelmed Turkish men. They don't know what hit them, right? The feminist revolution. Ah, James Baldwin loved Turkey. I wonder what it is about that part of the world. Anyway, I like to imagine that this could be an indication that we're evolving, that we may be coming to a new psychological plateau, uh, you know, a place or a space in which love, uh, relationships, human companionship can be based on something other than, what, <laughs> cannibalism, materialism, the great god Moloch, uh, exchange of goods and services, but maybe, maybe we've hit, hit a new, a new level. We just might be free to choose, choose our lives truly. Uh, some of us might even want to live alone. Solitude might be a cure for loneliness uh, maybe the utopia some of us 
dream of is a room of one's own, you know, but then a big multi-purpose room, um, a place in the center, you know. Sometimes you see tribes that live that way. Everyone has his own hut, but then they have a, a big common ground, a place where they all come together and everybody talks at once. And then they go back to their little private little carols, you know. I don't know, works for me. You know, everyone has a job or a role, uh, something that serves the community and uh, helps the children, which means that it uh, helps the next seven generations. And then, you know, friendships and lovers, uh, they could be, uh, well, they could relate to us on a democratic uh, level, you know. No dominance, that partnership model that all the New Agers write about. Uh, actually, we've got a lot of teacher-student relationships in the world, but I think that can be fixed. All you need is mutual respect. Uh, nobody, nobody has to be the boss of it. Uh, of course, all that's just idealism. <laughs> yes, let us neither dilly nor dally. Let us just search for the ideal. Uh, I think, well, some of us prefer uh, not to compromise these ideals. Uh, we'd rather be alone, but in this period in history, I think if you choose that, you can count on being lonely. Unless you want someone to oppress you. I don't know, a lot of people would rather be <laughs> oppressed than all alone. But remember that if you permit, if you permit yourself to remain in oppressive relationships, you're hurting his karma. His karma will suffer as well as your own. I have a terrific letter from a kind listener that... Uh, Let's see. Thank me for a program that I did on men and violence back in June. And what fascinates me, what, uh, well, I might have time to read this letter next time. Uh, oh, yes. She said all these kind things. And she was basically complimenting me on my use of the woman psychiatrist, Phyllis Chesler. She wrote a book called About Men. And <laughs> the letter from the listener tells me that uh, she calls herself Bird of a Feather. Oh, thanks, Pat. It's a lovely letter, and I will read it next time because it's a long, typed-up, two-page letter. Uh, and it's all about the study of guys. God bless them, you know, uh, we all know that uh, someone the other day said I was being, I was talking about uh, feminism and that that was all about men hating. And I said, well, if, if women hated men, it would all be over by Friday. I think the opposite is the problem. It's women who are the romance addicts on one level. They're not about to give up uh, on men. I think... Uh, we can count on that. But I thought I'd take just a few minutes. I was going to spend the whole hour today on Phyllis Chesler. 
And now I've distracted myself here. I think it was that movie that got me going, but uh, yeah, I do want to look at Phyllis Chesler because I know that I have some letters here from people who keep asking me what they should read. And this book about men, well, the only copy I have is a copy someone made for me because I think it's out of print. It's very hard to find Phyllis Chesler's book about men. She is famous for her first book, first hit. It's called Women in Madness, written many years ago. Uh, But this book is what is it it's a real primer she uses everything she uses the arts she uses um, uh, psychology uh, she uses everything um you know science religion she goes at the thing from every angle it's kaleidoscopic uh dear dear <laughs> freud yes freud he got it wrong but he got it okay uh here's a little Phyllis Chesler she writes slowly she's talking about men and violence and these wars and this pain that we suffer every day she says slowly I began to understand that father wounded sons never recover never confess and never remember slowly I began to understand why women can never satisfy the longing of boys who are love-starved for their fathers. Why women can never exercise the grief of men, lured by their fathers into wanting the impossible, revenge, reunion, redemption. God Almighty's benevolent protection against other men, against the original female parent, a magic male amulet, a son's shield against the rising hot shame of childhood vulnerability. There you go. I see them on television and the pundits say, oh, look at all the people rioting everywhere, all over the, uh, yes, the Arab Spring. Actually, uh, it's uh, men who are doing the... uh, uh, the rebelling. I looked last night and I finally saw two women. They were, uh, well, one of them was dragging a man away to try to help him. But there was one woman who was actually attacking. She had her headscarf on, but she was. Yes, she joined the fray. Mostly, though, if you watch them, uh, you will see what is that herds and herds of men men. Uh, I'm looking here at uh, what Phyllis Chesler does with her pictures of William Blake. She writes, William Blake's soul, it's a portrait of a soul, is the male notion of transcendence, of spirituality, redemption. There's no woman anywhere. In a sense, this is an extreme representation of the unmet yearnings of mortal sons for immortal and omnipotent father gods perhaps because their earthly fathers have failed them so or because their earthly leaders have failed them so I have a footnote here I think it's Kipling who said when they ask you 
why we died. Tell them this. Our fathers lied. Phyllis Chester finishes by saying how cruel is our exclusion, that is the exclusion of women, from authority and public rituals of spiritual transcendence. On she goes. I think Phyllis Chesler is going to be my, uh, my scholar for the rest of this year. The face of our earth half eaten away by the syphilis of greed, she writes. Cliffs fall in the sea. <laughs> the wealthy men buy gold and move to Brazil. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The Social Justice Center of Marin will have its annual membership meeting and benefit dinner on September 11, 2011, at 6 p.m., followed by an awards presentation. The keynote speaker is Gail McLaughlin, Green Party Mayor of Richmond, California. This benefit event will take place at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Marin, 240 Channing Way, San Rafael. The dinner price of $45, or sliding scale, will benefit the task force program at Social Justice Center of Marin. Contact Justine for details. 